Press this mute. I must have exited. Good evening. If you check the website, my name is Local Brother. There's Dana and there's Local Brothers. So my name is Local Brothers. And you heard the other Local Brothers last night. That's Lucio. But seriously, my name is Maurice. And it's a joy to be with everyone this, uh, this weekend. And it's really a joy to be with Dana the last two mornings. He's not here, so I'm going to say something. <laughs> I don't know that some of you young people realize um, how special it is to have someone like Dana who has lived uh, that, his, that life of Christ and opened up the word to us in such an amazing way. Those of us who are older take him for granted, but I hope the younger ones in our midst appreciate what's going on. 10, 20 years from now, you look back and say, there aren't a lot of people like that who are following the Lord. Um, in the way that he has. I guess it's riding a camel for 900 miles uh, has made him very special. But the reason I mention it is that we should appreciate these moments. Uh, Dana wouldn't want us talking about him. We'd want to talk about the fact that the Lord is speaking through him yesterday and the day before. And he's speaking to you and to me uh, in a, an amazing way. And we don't want to miss these moments. Um, let's turn, as we begin, to uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. Matthew 22, verse 2. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 15. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and then they will fast. And now turn with me to Psalm 45 that Dana touched on this morning. Start in verse 2. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your, on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The people fall under you. The arrows are in the heart 
of the king's enemies. And skip down to verse 10. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Verse 13. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be loved to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companion, will follow her, will be brought to her. And they will be loved forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. Let's also turn to our theme verse in Revelation 19. Let's read both 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this love story that you have brought us into. We thank you, Father, for your love for your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you as we've been worshiping even this evening for he who came and died for us became our Savior and is now seated at your right hand. The Lamb upon the throne. Lord, tonight we don't want to miss the opportunity together to consider you and to consider the issue of being a prepared bride for you. And Lord, we do pray that each person at this conference will take a step with you, toward you and with you, even as some have done this morning. And Lord, we look to your Holy Spirit, the one who's going to take care of Bring us to that place, your Holy Spirit, to be active right now. You're the one who reveals Christ. You're the one that helps us let go. You're the one that convicts of sin. And we ask you to work in this moment. Lord, life is short for us. And those in this room have a short time here. Lord, We want to give ourselves to you. We want you to speak. We want you to reveal. And we want you to move. Lord, far beyond anything uh, I may say, we pray that you'll touch us tonight. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, with all this talk about weddings, uh, Dana was off at a wedding. We don't know if he was standing in the rain or what. Last week, my wife and I were at the wedding of my niece. So, the topic of weddings and marriages has been sort of on our minds throughout this week and, of course, for all of us this weekend. So, I want to start us off, prime us a little bit, get us going to ask you a few questions. These will be private answers. You'll see that's important in a minute. I want to ask you a few questions. The first one is, how many of you, and you don't have to do anything except respond inside your mind, okay? I'm not asking for a show of hands. How many of you have already planned or are beginning to plan your wedding? Oops, I saw a hand over there. How many are planning your own wedding? Now, there may be some people in this room who are actually engaged and they're planning the wedding, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you don't even know who it's going to be and you're still planning your wedding. There's definitely some folks in here. And they're probably 100% female. <laughs> My good guess. Maybe a few males are thinking. And if a guy's thinking about wedding, he's like, what is it? I think I've been to one or two. But the women are different. They're already thinking about it. 
Some of them even know what kind of dress they're going to have. So I ask you another question. Do you know the person or do you think you know the person that you want to marry? Right now, are you in love with somebody that you want to marry? Now be careful. Watch your eyes now. Is that person in the room? <laughs> is that person you love and you think you might want to marry in this room? I, I don't want to reveal anything. Be careful. Now, a more important question for tonight. If that person's here, or if they're not, maybe they're not because you have high standards. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. (laughs) Let's think about what it is you admire in that person. What do you admire in that person, whether they're here in this room or not? You know, you guys are all about, uh, they have to be beautiful, etc. I don't know what you women want. I still don't understand women. I have two sisters, a mom and a wife of 26 eight years and I still don't understand women. What do you admire in the person you're looking for? Let's think about that. Let's broaden a little bit to people you admire. Now, we don't live in a culture of heroes, but let's think about heroes. Who do you admire? What kind of characteristics? attract you to a person? You see something in a movie or you read a book or it's a teacher or something. What do you admire? I'm not going to get a list. It's in your head. I think guys tend to admire strong, you know, victorious thing, people. How else do you explain video games? Sports, 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 <laughs> sports. Women, I said I didn't understand it, but women, I think, care about things like character and integrity and consistency. At least some of them do. All right. That's a primer. There's more when that came, there's more where that came from. So hold those thoughts. Now don't be distracted. The whole message. Think about so and so who's sitting over there. <laughs> all right. This is all of, you know. You know. You know where we're going with this. All right. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter nine, verse fourteen. Matthew 9, verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Notice what Jesus says very boldly here. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn, meaning the disciples can't mourn while they're with Jesus. Now, of course, after a weekend like this, it's no big news that Jesus is the bridegroom. In fact, in our Christian life, when we read verses like this, we just, say, we just go right over it. But imagine how shocking this was to the disciples when all of a sudden Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. And he does. He's he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. So that's one thing. I think to them it was sort of out of the blue. The truth is, there's a whole theme in the Old Testament about how God wants to, in effect, be married to his people and how they turn into a harlot and go off to other things. But to the disciples, it's probably shocking. Bridegroom. What did he mean by that? Well, 
First of all, what does it mean? <laughs> it implies there's going to be a wedding. That Jesus is a bridegroom and there's going to be this event sometime in the future. And then he says flat out, if fasting doesn't make sense if you're with the bridegroom, you're with Jesus right now, does it make sense to mourn? Absolutely not. Because as the disciples were finding out, being with Jesus is, was everything. And that's what we find out. Living with Jesus is, is what it's all about. Think of how God was revealing himself to those disciples. They're following him. They're seeing the miracles. They're hearing his teaching. They're amazed one day after the other as they go on in his life. So, of course, they shouldn't be mourning. They're with the bridegroom. They're with him. They're receiving. And think of how Jesus, over the three years, drew them more and more to himself. And he drew them sort of away from the other things that held on to them. Watch that when you study the Gospels in your own private reading. Watch how he draws them closer and closer to them. And that's what he's doing with you and I. When we're with him, we receive this life from him. But there is something else here. There's something else that's really important. What happened just then? What was going on in your head? Besides the fact that this local brother guy lost it. Maybe he's upstairs throwing up because he's so nervous. Maybe he went for a long walk. But I left the room. Did I warn you? Did I tell you what was going to go on? Did I give you even a hint? I hold that thought. This actually is to prove a point. Okay? What else is going on when Jesus says this? He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Here's a statement by our Lord Jesus saying, I am going away. And we'll, we see in these parables, many parables, where Jesus says, I'm going away and I'm coming back. I didn't tell you I was coming back. I didn't even say I was going away. I just left. Now, imagine this. If I had said this. Listen, guys. Oh, that's good. You blessed your faith. <laughs> I am going away, but I'm coming back. I want you to wait here. And while, I, while you're waiting, I want you to read Matthew 25 or something. And then I go off. How different is that? I've prepared you. I've said I'm coming back. And I've given you an assignment. Something to do. The reason I went through all that is I am so glad that our Lord Jesus prepared all of us for this period of time in history in which we're going to wait for him. I'm so glad he told us he's coming back. And I'm so glad he told us what it was going to be like while he was gone 
And when you read those parables, appreciate them. That it's your Lord saying, be ready. Let me tell you what it's going to be like. And don't forget, I am coming back. In John 15, the marvelous uh, chapter about abiding in him, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for slaves, uh, the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. That verse expresses Jesus saying, look, I'm taking you into my confidence. It's not just that you're going to obey as I give you little uh, commands. But I want to share with you what the Father's up to, what he's doing. And he wants to let us know uh, what's going on. So we're not just slaves. He calls us friends. But a friend in the sense that he's sharing us what, what's really happening. All right, let's turn to a parable then. If Jesus being so good about warning us and telling us about this period of time in which we're waiting, let's look at chapter Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 25, another bridegroom parable. Uh, Lucio mentioned that last night. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come, come out to meet him. Then all the, the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. And the prudent answered, No, there was, will not be enough for us. If, and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came and said, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So in this parable, we see Jesus saying very, very clearly, in the parable, he presents this bridegroom character that of course is him. So there's a bridegroom, there's going to be a wedding, and now there are people who are going to either be in that wedding or not. It's going to be a joyous wedding. But also notice that he's telling us that it, there's going to be a delay. Because he said in verse 5, now while the bridegroom was delaying. So he's telling us to expect the fact that Jesus' return is going to be later than we might think. Actually, it's been, what, 2,000 years now. So this is real important for the disciples to understand that it's going to be later than we think and of course he says at the end not when we expect it. So here's a wonderful example and there are others where our Lord is giving us that warning. He's saying I'm going away I'm coming back you're going to wait and it's going to seem long sometimes. There's also what at the end in this story, we see the wedding. We see a joyous event. And we get to be a part of it. The wedding party, in this case, the maids, will be a part of the wedding. So we get to be a part of that wedding. And of course, the normal lesson we focus on, which is, which is the important one too, is the flask of oil. And of course, the flasks, they speak of a measure of the Holy Spirit that we have from having an intimate relationship with the Lord. And that's, Dana's made that so clear in his message that the Holy Spirit is the one who takes us on this journey. 
And really, it's our job to put ourselves in, cooperate with what he's already doing. That's his job, to cooperate with him. Go and get the flask. That means going to the Lord and having your relationship with him. Then you'll have your flask of oil, your relationship with him. How important is it? Look at the end. Jesus actually says to those who don't have the oil, I don't know you. That's tough. (laughs) That's tough. That means that they don't have that living relationship or active relationship in which Jesus can see himself in them. So we're to heed the warning. We're supposed to know that there's a delay and we need to pursue this life of being close to him. And then he promises this wonderful thing to be part of his wedding. Now let's look at our theme verse again in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to God for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. As we look to this wedding that's going to happen, what is the characteristic of this bride? What's going to mark her? What's going to be distinct? And I think we all agree I think we understand it. We've heard it in some of your prayers, our prayers in our worship times. The mark of the bride is going to be that her eye is on the bridegroom. Right? We're looking to him. The groom is waiting for the bride. And what will he want to see in her? And to illustrate this, I have some examples. So, I want to uh, pretend this is a marriage ceremony here. And you really have to use your imagination cause, because I'm the, I'm the bride. <laughs> so imagine, i got three cases. These mics are picking up weird. I've got three cases here. Bride number one. Bride number one is all about me. Bride number one is gorgeous. And as she's coming down... I don't know, this isn't going to work. These other mics are picking up. As she's coming down the aisle, and the door opens, last week's wedding, and I was participating, so I got to stand up front... The doors open and everybody's like, ah, there's the wife. Look at the dress. And then people start, you know, family members start crying. And some guy who wanted to marry starts crying. (laughs) And she's coming down the aisle. Now, Now I want to go inside her head. Bride number one is all about herself. She's thinking, I am the most beautiful creature that ever walked on this earth. I am just so stunning. This guy up there is so lucky to have me. He is so lucky to adore me his, his whole life. What a privileged dude he is. And as she walked, oh, there are my friends. They're admiring me. In fact, they're a little jealous because I'm just so much more beautiful than them. Imagine that kind of wife. I mean that bride. All right, so that's a self-centered, it's all about me kind of bride. Obviously, our bridegroom isn't looking for that. Number two. Number two would be a bride that sort of doesn't have the confidence at all. The self-conscious bride. She's the one who studied all the things, all the, all the verses in the, in the Bible about being a good wife and all that, but she's not really sure she's going to be a good wife. So she's coming down now going, do I look good enough? Is my dress okay? Is he going to love me? Like a long time? <laughs> (laughs) 
Or maybe they're self-conscious about it because they're so want to please the, the they want to be such a good wife. They're just thinking about, okay, have I done everything I'm supposed to be? Am I really prepared? Down the aisle, they're going, am I prepared enough? Am I prepared enough? All right, it's still self. self. Now, the third ideal bride, of course. What should this? What should be in the head of the third bride? She comes through that door and looks down the aisle, and where should she be looking? Right, looking at the bridegroom. And of course, she's gorgeous. Of course, she's wearing a fabulous dress because, in our case, who gave it to her? He gave it to her. So she doesn't have to worry about the dress going, geez, it look okay? Do I got all the gold thread showing? <laughs> she spent months preparing for this wedding. So she's ready. Why? Because all those months she's thinking about him, the bridegroom. That's the kind of bride I think we're talking about. We all agree, right, when I do these examples. This bride is humble. This bride is still walking down the aisles going, how can he love me? But not in a negative way, in a wonderful way. How can he love me? How did he choose me? Why am I a part of this? This bride is going down the aisle going, wow, from this moment I get to be with him. For years. Humbled, amazed, and focused on the bridegroom. So I thought it would be good tonight for us to do a little bit of meditating on the bridegroom as we collectively want to be a part of that bride. So let's do that together by turning to Psalm 45. This psalm is <coughs> song is one of the sons of Korah, so it's not written by David. It's about a king who's about to be married. Maybe they say it's Solomon, but as Dana mentioned this morning, it's much more than that. In some ways, it's more like da- it's about David kind of king, not Solomon kind of king. But it's clearly speaking of our Lord. He starts out my. My heart overflows with the, with the good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you for, forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, and in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemy. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil of joy above your fellows. We'll stop there for the moment. Look at verse 3 and 4. This is a picture... We talked about heroes briefly. This is a picture of a mighty hero, a warrior king. First of all, in verse 2, you're fairer than the sons of men. Jesus is set apart. He's better than any man you'll ever know. But in verse 3, gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride on victoriously. Now, I mentioned earlier we male types tend to like strength and victory. We love to win. I I'll bring it up again. Video games. How many of you play to lose? Nobody. <laughs> Why do you enjoy playing the games? Because you get to win and defeat the enemy. That's sort of part of our makeup. And, the, and you ladies look at that and go, all right, when are they going to get over it? 
It's like it's not such a big deal. But I don't know, God made us this way. I think we care about strength and victory. And here we have our hero, Jesus, described as a mighty warrior. Mighty one, actually. Another translation is warrior. But when, when guys, when we celebrate victories in sports and all that stuff, if the victory is, if someone cheated, let's say, or they won victory just through corruption or whatever, it's sort of hollow, isn't it? You know, you say, well, I respect them because they won, but they're really creepy, awful people. So it's sort of hollow. Now, women, as I said, you care about things like character and integrity. So when you're watching a sports game, you're much more in tune with things like, you know, which team has the most heart and what's the best storyline and all that kind of stuff, you know. They went through a lot of hardships this year and they get to win. Isn't that wonderful? Well, if you put these two together, what do you get? You get a righteous victory. It's in sports, we're always happy. If the, if the best team, you know, the ones with the good quality, if they win, you're like, yes! I'm glad they smashed them to smithereens. Because <laughs> they were good guys. And then you get on TV and said, oh, tell us about it. Oh, it just shows what you can do if you believe in yourself. <laughs> Over in the other locker room, they're like, coach, we believe in ourselves, we just lost. Anyway, the only good interviews are the, uh, the guys who say, well, I just thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for the chance to be here. Those are the good interviews. But anyway, <laughs> but we like a righteous victory. And actually, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's face the fact that Jesus, our hero, is a righteous victor. He wins. He already won. He's going to win. And he's righteous. Yeah. I get excited about that. There's no mixture in it. There's nothing impure in Christ's victory. In, there's nothing. There's no hypocrisy. It's not a power thing. It's wonderful. Jesus is, has already proven that he's victor. In the spiritual realm, he's done it. And we all know from the book of Revelation and verses, he's going to do it in a much more outward way when he returns. I know, I like the one quote of someone who studies Revelation, says, I don't understand all those interpretations in Revelation. But the one thing I understand in Revelation is Jesus wins. And I'm glad I'm on his side. So let's look at this. The next verse says, In his majesty he rides on victoriously for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Jesus is the truth. He said he was the truth. His victory over death has nothing to do with anything corrupt. There's no spin or persuasion or power trip. He won the victory. And Jesus said himself, he's the truth. What does that mean to you? The whole world around us is filled with people who don't know God. They don't know if there's a God. Think of your schoolmates, friends, colleagues. And Jesus is the truth about God. Right? We all know it. And yet there are millions and millions of people spending their whole life not knowing who God is. But Jesus came, and for you and I, for, for those who receive him, we understand he's the truth about God. We find out that God is there. God is holy. God does love you. All because of Jesus. Right? God's, Jesus is also the truth about you. What do I mean by that? You guys are young. You're growing up. You're finding out who you are. Jesus is your barometer. He's how you find out who you really are. What do I mean? Well, first of all, you look at him and you see 
purity and you see amazing things. And then the Holy Spirit shines the light in and you see, wow, I'm a sinner. So he shows us our sin. But on the positive side, Jesus also shows you what man should be, what man was meant to be, what the Father wants man to be. And so he's an ideal and he's a man. And by his grace and through his work in us, we actually calls us into being like Jesus by his grace. So he's the truth about God. He's the truth about you. He's the truth about being sinners. And he goes to the cross and proves the truth about God's love and our sin at the same time. Right? People go through life wondering, thinking that the way back to God is, is that God compromises, that he says, okay, sin is okay. And of course, with Jesus, we know that's not. He shows us that he's holy and righteous, but loving and forgiving. So he's the truth about everything for us, showing us that we're the child of God. Imagine if Jesus didn't come to you and become truth to you. So he is a victor with regards to truth. And the next word in this translation is meekness or humility. Meekness. Now we're talking victory here and all of a sudden we get this word meekness. And most of us when we hear the word meekness think of someone who's over in the corner sort of hiding because they're really shy and don't really want to see people. And Is that meekness? Of course, Jesus, we don't mean that at all. It's humility. And it's a manly meekness, if I may say it that way. It's manly meekness. Right, that guys? Are you ready to be, are you ready to be manly meek? His meekness is the meekness of, of washing feet. Do you think I might actually do it? Uh, I don't have time. <laughs> You're right. His meekness was the meekness of, of going and sitting with sinners. The prostitutes and the tax collectors and hanging out with them not because he was compromising about sin but because he was humble and he was serving them as he serves us. Manly meekness. Now I just got to say the current state of manhood in our culture is pretty sad. Of course you get the video get back to video games you get these super jacked up, you know, humongous creatures to go and destroying all the enemies. They're hollow inside. And then you look on TV and all the guys are just bumbling idiots. You know, goofing up all over the place. So that's some great moral models, guys. Which one are you going to follow? Well, of course, the answer is <laughs> Sunday school answer, which is true, Jesus. But, <clears throat> just to the guys, Christ will make you a real man. Period. And women, pray for it to happen. Because <laughs> you don't want to be married to one of these bozos, jerks, whatever. Guys are shallow and they've got one-track minds and all kinds of things. But with the Lord, they can be something. By His grace. Because a guy who is grounded in truth, who has convictions from the Lord, who's stable, can be a real man. When the fruit of the Spirit starts flowing out of a, a, a person, that's manhood. Manly meekness. What Jesus displayed in his walk and in his life. Our brother Bob Greco mentioned this verse last night in our kitchen, so let's read it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome 
the evil one. That doesn't sound like an artificial meekness. That sounds like manly meekness. And that's our call. Men, to be strong and the Word of God abiding in us. Can't do that without the Holy Spirit having that flask and to overcome the evil one by His grace. We're not going to dwell on that, but I just want to challenge you guys. The third word in that phrase is righteousness. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. And for that, we have to turn to Romans chapter 3. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Verse 21. Now, when we see the word righteousness, especially when we're talking about victors here, we tend to think of righteousness in terms of someone enforcing the law. That's what we tend to think of. But of course, we know that the righteousness of God is something much, much higher. So let's celebrate that. Christ, our bridegroom, is the victor. And he brought his victories is bringing this righteousness. So let's just appreciate these verses that, tell, that remind us of the righteousness of God. It's a higher level. His righteousness is not about law and us obeying the law. It's about him providing a rightness, a right relationship with him through faith. And look for the verse in here where we see our meek Lord going to the cross for us. Verse 21, we start... But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Here's our bridegroom, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We thank our bridegroom for bringing us the righteousness of God. Not the law enforcer, but the one who went to the cross, who was hung on the cross, to bring us this righteousness of God, the Father, which includes forgiveness and love and mercy. So as we think of our hero, Jesus, having brought these things to us, these are not abstractions. Every one of those you have experienced truth, his meekness, his righteousness are given to us. So we've known the victory now and we look forward to the victory we'll see when he comes back. And he goes on. Let's just read on. This is back in uh, Psalm 45. Let's go back to Psalm 45. Let's pick up verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. Now, we don't think of scepters very long. Uh, Our president doesn't carry on a scepter, but it was a sign of authority. But notice it says a scepter of uprightness. Usually in this world, those who are in power have it corruptly. But with Jesus, our hero, the scepter is of uprightness. There's no impurities perfect. And so we're glad when he's victorious. We're glad when he goes forward uh, in victory. And then it says, You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy above your fellows. He, as we saw Jesus walk on this earth, 
we saw how he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, he didn't hate the sinner. We all know that. He hated the sin. What got Jesus the most upset? Hypocrisy, pride, the Pharisees who kept people from the Lord. He hated wickedness. And so God the Father says here, he anoints the king with oil of joy or happiness above his fellows. In John chapter 15, uh, verse 11, you don't need to turn there. He says, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. That this joy that Jesus had in watching his Father's will be brought about is something he's saying he wants to share with us. So we want to appreciate it. Now, we, there are more verses. We don't have time. But what is this king, our hero Jesus, the victorious one, is now looking to a bride? So in this picture you have, here's this king, the one we admire, the one who's worthy of a bride, and now the attention turns in this psalm towards who that bride should be. What should the bride be like? And as we said already, as I gave different examples, we all know it. This bride should be focused on the bridegroom, should be looking to the groom, should be longing to be with him, should be willing to do whatever it is to get ready, to be going out the, about the business of, of, of the groom. And as Dana's made clear, we're to cooperate with the Holy Spirit that's going to prepare prepare us to be that, that bride. Let's look then at verse 10 and 11. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. Now Dana mentioned this this morning and I had fully planned to mention it. I want to touch on it again. He says here, forget your people. Forget your people and your father's house. There's a need for separation, an independence in a devotion to him. Now, Lucio spoke very, very clearly about Babylon. Imagine that bride coming down the aisle for the Lord Jesus and that bride being caught up in the world. Can't be. It just can't be. There has to be separation from the world and sin. But also now, imagine that bride not caught up in so negative things, but still wrapped up in family. Their family. Bound to their family. What does it say here? It's rather amazing. Forget your people and your father's house. Now, in NIV, it's not quite so clear, but then it says, then the king will desire your beauty. There's almost a connection here that that devotion allows the groom to appreciate the beauty. Or look at it another way. If we're... If, if the bride has her heart set on other things, then that beauty isn't there. This is real important for, for, for us tonight, this separation, and for you young people. So imagine a spouse. You get married, and then that spouse is always talking to their mother. You know? They're not really devoted to you. They're always talking to their mom. So this could go either way. So imagine if they're always talking to their mom instead of talking to you. Now what kind of marriage would that be? Let's see if she's home. And she's not home. Hi there, Mom. Hi, how are you? Hi there. 
Can, yeah, I'm in the midst of a message, actually. <laughs> I'm right in the middle of it. But, yes, so then, then what are you doing knocking on the phone? <laughs> well, you see, the, the thing is this. Um, I'm, I'm a little nervous. It's a bunch of teenagers. And you know how teenagers are. They, 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 they know everything. So I really need some reassurance from you. Can you just remind me that, that you love me and you think I'm great? Well, do you... Yeah. She said yes. She said yes. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Go, go take care of the pie. Oh. Uh, oh, wait a minute. They're missing this. Say it again. You are the only person in the world that I would burn a pie for in order to... All right. That's great. Oh, okay. I love you too. Tell Dad. Yes. Talk to you tomorrow. All right. Because we gotta talk every day. Bye. I didn't warn her. She had no idea. Okay, but let's not lose the point. What's the point? Imagine if you're married to me and I was doing that every day. That I needed my mom to boost me up. On a daily basis now. Now, what kind of marriage is that? Imagine if the bride is like that. They're tied to family. So what we're talking about here is separation from good things. Okay? Separation from the Christian family that has brought you up and given you so much. Now you're going to go home and say, Marie said to rebel. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. But let's get the image. Imagine the groom is up here and the wife, what is in her head? The bride, what is in her head? Is she still bound to her family? Rebecca had to leave. What does that mean for you? What does this mean? Separate from the people. Separate from your, her family. Now, Jesus himself said, in these words that that puzzle us, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you're going to go home and say, Maurice said to hate you. Please don't. Because we all know what the Lord was saying. The Lord was saying, you've got to love me. I have to be first. I have to be first. And of course, what really happens is, if we turn, now we switch to the other side, and we turn from family and focus on the Lord and give ourselves to Him, we will eventually, we will be able to love and obey our parents better than we ever could have done before. I was harshest on my mom when I was a seeker. Only when I had the Lord in me that I could really love and obey her in a new way. Right? That's how these things fit back together. But you have to be able to separate. The Rebecca has to leave her family. What does that mean for you guys? I don't know the answer. You have to seek the answer. What does that mean? Are we just living out the Christianity of our parents? That's not good enough. Are we just living out a, a rebellion against parents? I meet, you meet people who, they're in their 30s and their whole life is still about proving that they're not like their parents. Okay? I'm not like my parents. Now, are they separated from their parents? Not really. Their whole thing is about being a rebel against their parents. So are they free? No. How does that freedom come? The freedom comes when we turn away from even the good and turn to Him. We appreciate and love the good, but we, He asks for our heart. 
And so you see this bride, it act, you see these two together because, it's almost as if it says there, because she's forgotten her people and turned to him, he can appreciate her beauty. I think that's really important for us. And then we look at the next verse, which we're already familiar with. The, verse 13, let's skip. The king's daughter is still, is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. And she will be led to the king in embroidered work. And so Dana mentioned that this morning, and we all know that we, this bride, that's suitable for our hero, Jesus Christ, has to be pure within. There's no room to include that which is not of himself. And as we read in our theme verse and mentioned this morning, the righteous acts of the saints are what make this this gown, that's this beautifully woven gown that's, that's that she wears. And so this is the wedding that we all want to be a part of. And this is our, our bridegroom saying, look, I'll be back. I'm coming back. And please prepare while you wait for me. He's going away, but he's coming back. So we want to just finish up by looking now at the second parable in chapter 25 of Matthew. If you'll turn it back to there. We won't read the whole thing, but... You're familiar with this parable, starting verse 14. For it, is just, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received five talents went and traded them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who received just two talents gained two more. But he who received one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Now, in the interest of time, let's just switch the order so we can see what's going on here. But the, let's switch it now. Let's, this master is the bridegroom. Notice he's going away. He's coming back. And he's given them an assignment. And he's given them talents. Okay, by the way, this is a large amount. According to one thing, it's like 15 years' salary. This is, this is a big deal. And these are slaves. So he's giving them uh, this, this thing that, that is still his possession. Verse 14, notice it entrusted his possessions to them. Here, take care of this. Now, what happened to the guy who only got one talent? Verse 24. And the one also who was received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground, so you, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap, reap where I did not sow and gathered where I uh, scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put the money in the bank, and in my arrival I would have at least received money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For anyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But for the one who does not, even what he does not, shall have been taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place where we are weeping and gnashing teeth. Now, I just want you to focus on one thing tonight about this guy. What's his view of God? He had it all wrong. 
The master had trusted them with these huge things. The master had promised, as we see, is going to reward them tremendously. And he had it wrong. He said, you're stingy. So his view of God is all wrong. And so he withdrew because he didn't believe who God really was. And tonight, we don't have that possibility. We can't... Because of who Jesus is, we're not going to say, God, you're stingy, you don't give... You know, That's not for us. So let's look at the, the guy who had ten talents and see what happens. We know the bridegroom's character. Okay? So the one who had ten talents, he says, verse 20, the one who had received the five talents came and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. Of course, he, got, he, he had ten then. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. And so here we see, let's just translate this, the master to the bridegroom. The bridegroom says, I'm going away. The bridegroom gives us his life and says, Here is your assignment. Take what I give you and invest it. Exercise it. Use it. It's a gift for me. It's mine owned. It's, it's, it's mine. And then not only that, when I come back, there's going to be a reward that far exceeds what you know now. Right? 